Welcome to The Art of Range, a podcast focused on rangelands and the people who manage them. I'm your host, Tip Hudson, range and livestock specialist with Washington State University Extension. The goal of this podcast is education and conservation through conversation. Find us online at artofrange.com. It is my privilege to have on the Art of Range today, Dr. Stephen Franson. Dr. Franson has been a forage specialist for a few decades at the Washington State University Prosser Research Station. Steve, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Tip. It's my pleasure and honor to be with you today. I've worked for WSU since 2003, and we've known each other at least since then, uh, which is a little while, but you have been at WSU for quite a while before I started with WSU. Uh, How did you end up being a forage researcher? It goes way, way back. Uh, You mentioned decades, Tip, and it's true. Uh, Actually, it started when I was an undergraduate uh, in plant and soil science department at Montana State University in Bozeman uh, back in the early 70s. And I worked for a fellow uh, over the summer, and uh, he was a USDA ARS uh, forage scientist. And I just really fell in love with uh, the plants that we were working with. And at that point in time, I was drawing uh, from my background, which was being born and raised on a small grain farm in north central Montana, and uh, thinking maybe we'd go back to that. But uh, these forage plants really caught my attention and my interest. And uh, from that point on, that's been my pretty much my focus ever since and had the opportunity after I did my PhD in South Dakota, also with forages and rangelands, uh, to be able to come to WSU. And this time it was over on the west side at Puyallup. Uh, they have a research and extension center there. So in 1983, I started at the WSU Puyallup Research and Extension Center. And then I was there until 2000. And um, that's when uh, my predecessor here in Prosser at the Research and Extension Center had retired, leaving this position open. So I just essentially transferred my position from Puyallup to Prosser, knowing that I had spent a lot of time over in Puyallup and on the west side, so I could continue to help the west side folks. Plus, then I had uh, this new opportunity and experiences to bring to the Prosser uh, folks and Eastern Washington. And so uh, I've been at WSU then since 1983, and I have to admit I've enjoyed every single minute of what I've done, and especially the people who I've worked with in the, the dairy industry, the livestock industry, the hay industry. Uh, they've all welcomed me and made me feel really really comfortable. And uh, it's been a lot of fun. And I hope it uh, has been productive for them as well, because it certainly has been a lot of fun for me. Good. Uh, 1983 was was a good year. I think I learned to read that year. <laughs> and I actually have some long lost relatives in Haver that I've never met. Uh, oh. But Bozeman probably looks a little different than it did when you were there. 
oh my goodness, it's quadrupled in size uh, since we have been there. When we were there, uh, the student population at MSU was like less than 5,000, and now it's pushing like 15,000, 20,000 uh, students. So it's it's huge compared to what it used to be. Um, but I think that probably the integrity of the school uh, is very similar to what it has always been. I think that's uh, the one constant that uh, you can look look back on and also look forward on and say, this is good. Well, you've been working on a project uh, called the Pacific Northwest Inland Pasture Calendar. And this was a follow-up to a, a a uh, West Side pasture calendar for those for folks that are not from Washington. Uh, we have a pretty significant ecological divide down through the middle of, well, actually Washington, Oregon, and most of California, where the the West Side of that coastal range looks dramatically different than the East Side. In fact, I think Washington State may have the steepest rain shadow in the lower forty eight. Uh, we go and, and I live right in the middle of it. We we go from about 120 inches of annual precipitation at the crest of the Cascades to about five inches annual precipitation in the space of, I guess that's 80 miles, 100 miles. Mm-hmm. Uh, yep, it's quite pretty quite distinct. And the west side of the state receives much more precipitation, uh, and you know natural vegetation looks much much different than the east side of Oregon, Washington. Uh, and then uh, central and, and parts of California. And there are significant differences between how those plants respond. In fact, I've been saying for a number of years now, and Steve, you can correct me if I'm wrong, that I think uh, this is how much of Western rangeland bunch grasses were lost. I th- I think that we brought, we meaning settlers that moved to the West from the East, brought ideas about grazing management that were applicable on the sod-forming grasses that were dominant in much of the Eastern and Southern U.S. and that were also uh, dominant in the parts of Europe that those settlers originally came from. Namely, that those plants can tolerate frequent defoliation and, and respond positively to that. And most of the western rangeland bunch grasses um, have are jointed grasses with elevated meristems, elevated growing points that cannot tolerate being defoliated uh, throughout the growing season. And this is part of why I wanted to visit with you about this. Uh, I think that most rangelands people. Uh, tend to approach things from a macro perspective. We're always trying to see things at the landscape scale and understand these landscape-level ecological processes that are interacting with each other and trying to figure out how to fit livestock into that. Uh, you know, But every single one of those plants has micro-scale you know, physiology that is relevant to how those plants respond Uh, to livestock grazing, and at least in my experience, that often gets lost. And you spend a fair bit of time thinking through and understanding and researching uh, all of those uh, micro-scale growth processes, and um, I think this is something that is important to talk about. So that's a pretty long introduction. Tell me a bit about the Pasture Calendar Project. 
I don't disagree with a single word you said there, Tip. I think that's exactly correct. Um, we brought uh, the the concepts and so forth uh, for what we have done here for a long time from the from elsewhere. And uh, recognizing our environment in the West, everything past west of the 100th meridian, which is div- about divides the United States in half. And uh, west of there, where we are here, uh, it's pretty darn dry, especially in the summer. We're very arid, semi-arid, uh, pretty much throughout the West. And uh, so that makes a huge difference in terms of our weather patterns and what we can grow. Our weather patterns are dictated by what comes out of the Pacific Ocean. And uh, we have these low pressures and high pressures that are coming out of the Gulf of Alaska. And we also get great influence out of Hawaii, uh, lows and highs there. And so what happens is the West Coast gets clobbered first and foremost uh, from in the United States with these changing weather patterns. And uh, but historically and even today, uh, during the summertime, we get very, very dry. And so the plants at, that we use in our grazing systems uh, have adapted and evolved to withstand those drought periods in the summer and also survive the extreme cold temperatures in the wintertime. Those are two periods when we have tremendous stress on the plants. Going back to looking at your micro versus macro scale out there, uh, on a macro scale, things all look very, very similar. But when you get down deep, and I like folks to get down on their prayer bones, that's their uh, hands and knees, and I want them to look real close, get that nose right down to that soil level, and I want you to look really close at those plants and what what are they doing? How are they growing? Where are they growing from? Dig a few plants up and then wash the soil off of the roots and look at what in the world is going on. And that's going to tell you a lot. And I learned this by accident, to be totally honest with you. Uh, we had designed an experiment in Puyallup to... Uh, determine when did we have uh, root regeneration and root shedding. And we use that term uh, now. We did not use it then. We, we were assuming that the roots of the grasses there on the west side were growing constantly. Uh, and we designed this experiment uh, with a ryegrass, and it pro- proved it my hypothesis was wrong. And so the first year we started uh, digging and, and uh, harvesting our plants in May, and we had a lot of white roots underground. But we got into July and there wasn't a single white root. And throughout July and August, uh, no white roots at all. Then in September, by gosh, here's a whole bunch of new white roots and new growing points. We saw those growing points throughout this uh, August, or let's say late August, September, October, and then we get into early mid-November, and of course then it's cold on the west side too, and the plants went into root shedding. 
Uh, not all of them, but most of them did go into root shedding. And so over winter time, it just kind of stayed um, status quo. Then in the spring, we had another event of root regeneration. The roots turned white again. And then, of course, we had our big spring flush of growth. Well, I thought certainly uh, this was something revolutionary and we need to do something with it only to be deflated uh, badly by a, a good friend of mine who shared with me a paper published during World War II in the American Journal of Botany uh, by a lady botanist. And this lady had exactly seen what I had just observed, except she didn't do the, the winter. I consider uh, her to be a fair weather botanist because she had it all figured <laughs> out in the spring, the summer, and the fall, but she didn't mm -hmm. go in, and, in there and dig up the plants in the wintertime, which is what we did. So the whole idea then was where did these, when did these growing points begin? Uh, what happened to them? How did our growth cycles begin? And that's started to change our entire philosophy and was truly the basis of our West Side pasture calendar. And we've taken that exact same philosophy and use it for our inland uh, pasture calendar. And that is that the calendar really starts in early September. Sometimes it may be in late August. It may be maybe uh, after Labor Day in September, but around that period of time, and it depends, every year is a little bit different, depends on the environmental uh, uh, situation that we've got at that time. There, there could be two, three uh, weeks of uh, variants uh, that are in there, but it's that's when we have the correct co environmental conditions, which is the shortening day length and the cooling temperatures. We're past the summer heat, and we have that shortening day length. Those are the two key triggers that are going to create those new apical meristems or new growing points. Once you've got the new growing point, then you create a new root. And we can see that new growing point was there because we observed the new root. And then you're going to see a new shoot on top of, this, on top of that apical meristem. So we don't really see the meristem per se. We see the, the root, we see the shoot. And that tells us that the meristem was created. And you can dig that plant up, and even now in uh, October, and, and likely still see those new growth periods because we have points because we've not had uh, bad killing uh, frost uh, or snow events at this point in time. So that's tip is what caused us to create uh, and put together this whole concept of a pasture calendar. And um, because, as you had suggested, Tip, the idea is that when we brought uh, a grazing philosophy into the West, where the plants were not adapted to that, we ended up having an overgrazing situation. And our calendar really is based upon the philosophy of uh, to prevent uh, overgrazing or mitigate the properties of overgrazing, uh, either in dry land or under irrigated pasture conditions. Yeah, I think this is part of what's so challenging in much of the West. 
Uh, I was back in Arkansas visiting my family this summer and was reminded uh, was reminded of the tremendous diversity of land types and forage types that we have in the West. You know, a given rancher may be managing, you know, really arid or semi-arid cold desert further south, managing hot desert. You know, that can be side by side with irrigated pasture that behaves totally differently. The same operation may be grazing crop aftermath, grazing cover crops that were grown for grazing, may have, you know, mountain pasture with forested range. Mm -hmm. uh, these are dramatically different uh, plant communities. And uh, it is not uncommon at all for an individual rancher to be managing all of those inside of their the pasture calendar year. <clears throat> and so it, I feel like some of these principles for how plants behave uh, you know, physiologically, just how they're, how the plants are, are wired to work uh, to the extent that that's applicable across all of those that would enable a person to kind of think for themselves uh, how to manage each of those different uh, range types, pasture types, you know, plant mm -hmm. community types in order to do the best thing they can for the plants. I mm -hmm. think this is something else that's maybe characteristic of agronomists and uh, a lot of range people. I've become aware that a lot of ranchers, uh, I would say maybe stereotypically, are often thinking about what's best for the cow, which makes a lot of sense because mm -hmm. what you're going to sell is an animal. Your income is from producing an animal that uh, is as healthy as it can be, that, you know, in the case of a calf, you know, gained weight well and ended up mm -hmm. at the end of the year and then and then you've got to maintain a mother cow to the end of the, to the to the next um, part of the cycle uh, and sometimes you know what's good for the plants can kind of get lost in that and so i feel like one of my jobs you know at the at the macro scale is to help these two perspectives talk to each other you know, within the rancher's mind to understand how plants function and then to translate that into what's good for animals. Mm -hmm. uh, and I've, I've also, I think it's clear to most people, at least in theory, that if you do a good job taking care of the land and plants, that they'll do a good job taking care of your animals. And I think that idea is maybe more mainstream than it was. Uh, mm -hmm. So come back to the, come back to the, pasture calendar what are some of the you mentioned that uh, trying to help counter overgrazing is one of the 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 driving forces behind it how does the past how's the calendar set up and how does it go about teaching people how to avoid overgrazing well that's a great question and and that's we've spent a lot of time working and developing this uh, to make that happen. So the pasture calendar really starts off by sh presenting some maps. And we're going to have a map of essentially eastern Washington, uh, all of Idaho, and eastern Oregon, because it is a PNW uh, effort. And our uh, project team of, of 20 scientists is all from uh, 
uni- land-grant universities at uh, WSU, OSU, and University of Idaho. And we also have NRCS specialists from Washington, Oregon, and Idaho as, as our team. So this allows us to work across the borders, so to speak, and uh, utilize everybody's resources. Well, the NRCS a number of years ago developed a resource called uh, the MLRA or Major Land Resource Area. And we've not used it very much in agronomy or uh, other um efforts, and we really should have. And I became aware of this through my NRCS folks on the west side, and that became our beginning point for our west side pasture calendar. And we just transferred that same philosophy uh, for our inland pasture calendar. So the region is set up in various MLRAs, and these are uh, similar or dissimilar based upon climate, elevation, length of the growing season, kinds of soils that we have, kinds of water resources that are there, uh, the kinds of plants that are adapted to that, and, and a whole bunch of other things that are, are helping uh, to describe where, where your farm or ranch really is. And believe it or not, we have a number of MR, MLRAs in the three-state region that are actually uh, cross-state borders. That, From the outside, you think, well, everything stops at the border, but no. <laughs> Mother Nature doesn't work that way. And so uh, we have some MLRAs. For example, I'll give you one. Uh, MLRA 7 and 8 is really the Columbia Basin. And we put MLRA uh, together uh, because the one is at a lower elevation and one is a higher elevation, but still it's within the Columbia Basin uh, environment. Uh, we also combined MLRA 43 and 44, which are mountain valleys, um, and that that uh, is a high obviously, elevation, and we separate that into really high elevation and lower high elevation. Uh, That's what 43 and 44 separations are based. So back to MLRA MLRA number seven and eight, that is found in both uh, Washington and Oregon. The MLRA 43 and 44, which is our mountain valley uh, ones, it's found in all three states. We also have some other crossovers uh, that are in there, but um, there's only a few MLRAs in Oregon that are not shared with either uh, Washington or Idaho, and these are actually shared with California and Nevada, which we in Washington uh, do not have. So based upon these MLRAs, that's our foundation And now we're going to start to divide the uh, what kind of plants do we have uh, and what kind of a, a situation are we setting these up into. For example, now, I already mentioned about early September is the beginning of our plant life cycle in our pastures. And so the calendar actually begins the 1st of September. And so every MLRA 
where our calendar is going to begin on the 1st of September, and we go for about a two-week period, and we're evaluating whether we're under a dry land or average uh, management scenario, or we're under what we call optimal or irrigated uh, management scenario. And every two weeks, we describe 10 growth uh, processes of these perennial cool season grasses, primarily. Uh, There could be some warm season, but primarily cool season grasses in our inland region. And uh, those those, uh, processes uh, really start, number one is what we call semi-dormant which usually starts in, uh, let's say, July and and August, depending on where you're at. And our first growth period uh, is really what we call 2A and 2B. And that's when we're going to see that brand new white root, brand new um, shoot, that brand new apical meristem all being produced. And there's, depending on how fast they're produced and how cool or warm the soils are, how how much moisture or how lack of moisture we have, that will proceed either at a slow rate or a faster rate during that October, uh, September, October period. And then we just continue on. Uh, unlike the West Side uh, pasture calendar, we really didn't have a distinct winter period on the West Side because we really don't. Uh, things cool off uh, by and large. They get extremely wet. On the inland region, we have a very distinct winter period, and that's period number four. And we have, all of us experience snow, maybe not a lot, maybe a whole lot. Um, we experience cold and freezing conditions, maybe for a long time, for months and months. Other times, maybe for only a few weeks. Just depends upon the MLRA that mm-hmm. we are dealing with. And so the pasture calendar then is set up uh, to start with the, uh, with maps of the different states with uh, MLRAs associated within the map. Then you go to the calendar itself, and you start to see the beginning of the calendar starting the 1st of September all the way through August 31. Um, And then we superimpose the growth periods on top of those those two situations that we have. So um, it it really makes it uh, a step-by-step process. It it seems like it's... um, intimidating to begin with, but honestly, it's really pretty simple when you sit back and look at it. Steve, you mentioned that the pasture calendar is based on, uh, I think you said 10 growth processes that uh, we could consider September as being the starting point. Can you walk through uh, those 10 growth processes for cool season grasses? Mm -hmm. Be happy to, Tip. Uh, and there are 10 of them. We have them numbered, uh, one through 10. And we have a couple of them that we actually have doubles on. Uh, and I'll hit those up real soon. Uh, these growth processes or periods, we start with number one. It's what called semi-dormancy. And uh, this is uh, a time when we're coming out of actually period number 10, which is full summer dormancy uh, or winter dormancy, 
but some are dormancy. And, uh, and what happened is it's coming out. You're going to start to see uh, a little bit of color transition of the plants. Uh, you will start to see a little bit of really slow growth uh, that might start um, as the temperatures decline and uh, the days are shortening. Then we get into period 2A and 2B. And now that we're into that fall period, this is when really when we're into September. Semi-dormancy is still probably in, in August. Now we're into September with the fall growth, uh, regrowth period. This is when those new apical marrow stems that I mentioned are were created and are being created. And you get to see these brand new green tillers coming out. Uh, you see the new white roots that are there. And you can still see a lot of brown leaves from the summer uh dormancy period or semi-dormancy period. Um, and so period 2A is the beginning of our what we call our fall flush. Period 2 fall B now, uh, this is still in that steady fall regrowth period. Uh, and what we're seeing here is the, the tillers are becoming very, very green at this point in time. The, the above ground growth is really... Um, growing rapidly and flourishing. Uh, we could even be thinking seriously about going out there and grazing that at this point in time. Um, and then, of course, uh, we have the end of the fall flush coming up at the end of this period 2B. The, you're going to have some brown leaf tissue, but it's going to be a lot less than you had in fall, uh, the fall regrowth period 2A. Now we go into what we call the declining growth. This is going to be period 3A and 3B. Now what happens is temperatures are starting to cool even more. And what happens then are day lengths, like right now, we're into very, very shortening, shortening days. And those, uh, those tiller growth uh, just continues to get slower and slower and slower. You can almost see it. it a, a metaphor to use here is uh, we may have still been having to mow our lawn twice a week during the uh, periods 2A and 2B. Now we're down to maybe once a week and mowing our lawn in period 3A and 3B. And, um, mm -hmm. and then we're, we see uh, there's a, a, a one temperature that's really, really important to, for everyone to remember, and that's 41 degrees Fahrenheit. This is a soil temperature at 41 degrees Fahrenheit, and, uh, and that's basically when we're going to shut the season off. And the, the plants are really going to start stop growing at that point in time. Air temperature really doesn't matter. It's the soil temperature is a driving force throughout the calendar and throughout the growth of our, of our uh, pastures. So the soil temperature at 41 degrees, we're pretty much done for the season. And so that ends then our declining growth and very slow growth periods of 3A and 3B. Now we're into winter dormancy. 
Okay, so this is period four. Winter dormancy, of course, is exactly what it means. It's uh, winter time. Uh, it's cold. We may or may not have snow. We may or may not have some rain or ice uh, at this point in time. But this is also when the roots are shedding. Now, we just had this root regeneration period in, in periods 2A, 2B, and still in 3A and 3B, now we're into root shedding in, in the winter dormancy period. What's that happen? They're no longer white. The roots are now are going to start to turn from white to kind of a cream color. Then they're going to start turning to a tan color, and then they're going to start turning to a brown color. And winter, of course, is a long period of time, depending upon which MLRA you are in. In the Columbia Basin, we're in a relatively short uh, winter dormancy period. You get into those high mountain elevation valley pastures, it's a pretty long winter dormancy period. And so it varies based upon what MLR you are in. But the winter is going to be the same and very distinct uh, for uh, the various regions uh, in our PNW. Now, we're going to come through this winter period. And and we're going to then have period 5A and 5B, which is when we're going to now surpass that soil temperature of 41 degrees Fahrenheit. We went into 41 degrees and lower. Now we're coming out of 41 degrees and warmer. Ah, now the meristems that were created last September in period 2A and B are now going to regenerate themselves. They're going to regenerate brand new white roots. Some of the shoots or most of the shoots that were created in the fall are now going to start to kick in and really start to grow. You may have some new growth coming off of those meristems, but largely what we created in the fall, it's going to be uh, exploited and ex uh, exploding during this period of time in 5A and 5B. Now, the difference between here is going to be uh, how rapidly do these uh, shoots and roots grow. During 5A, the, the growth is relatively slow. In 5B, that growth is relatively much faster. And so we separated those two apart because this could be uh, two weeks. It could be three weeks, four, five, six weeks, uh, or maybe longer, depending on your MLRA, that that grass pasture is going to be in period five. Now we are starting to warm up, and we're going to go into period 6A and 6B. Now, this is when we have a really rapid growth. We're creating our spring flush at this time. And everybody recognizes and understands what the spring flush looks like. Um, the plants now uh, are, are growing lots of leaves really, really fast. Uh, if you take a scenario of uh, your lawn again, you may be back to mowing this uh, lawn every other day uh, during this big flush. And that's exactly what's going on in the pasture as well. It's really growing rapidly. Those uh, interclary meristems on the leaf tissue are growing and expanding that leaf back out really fast. And so this is what the animals are going to consume 
And so this is a reason part of the philosophy is let's eat, let's rotate, let's move, and then, then let, let it regrow and rest. And, and so then we've got that during the spring flush period. <clears throat> um, quality is, is really, really good during that 6A period, but the quality starts to decline a little bit uh, if we don't harvest or graze it during the 6B period. We're going, going to go down. Now we go into period 7. This is what we call slowing growth. Slowing growth is the top growth starts to slow down, and also the root growth is starting to slow down. Uh, but we're able to maintain the quality and productivity if we have been grazing and managing it well during the previous 5A, 5B, 6A, and 6B growth periods. So slowing growth is actually kind of a short, short uh, cycle within the growth of the, the grasses. Now we're going to 8 uh, that was seven. Now we go into 8A and 8B. Now this is our steady growth. <clears throat> this is just before we're going to get into the root shedding. And, uh, and 6A is when we have the steady growth and the top growth is, is still growing, but the roots are starting to shed. Then 6B is the top growth essentially really slows down and the root shedding increases. So remember I'd mentioned about uh, digging the plants there in the fall and, and in the wintertime and looking at that root shedding? Guess what? You're going to see exactly the same thing happen right now here in late June and early July. We cannot stop it. Uh, but it because this is all based upon now hot temperatures and really long day lengths periods. The longest day lengths that we've got is also the major trigger of our root shedding uh, in this period 6A, uh, or excuse me, 8A and 8B. Then we get into like say July and August, we're into that slow growth period. And number 10, that's nine, and number 10 is our summer dormancy period. And in both cases, in the slow growth, number nine, and uh, summer dormancy, number 10, we're into full root shedding, and uh, there isn't a lot of growth occurring on top. And, uh, and we used to think of this as, well, it doesn't really matter what you do out there. Uh, just turn them out, let them take it all off, and so forth. You know what? That's exactly the wrong way to approach it. Because just think, what's coming up is going to be number one, 2A, and 2B. So this, our management right now during this slow growth and summer dormancy period, when it looks like nothing is important, nothing is happening, it's just a bunch of junk that's left out there, is not true. This is, the, is the, the plants have their stored sugars in the stubble. There is a little bit in the roots, but the, the sugar are stored in that stubble area. I wanted to ask what triggers the end of the summer dormancy? Uh, because it seems like sometimes uh -huh. I see plants break dormancy when there's not been any new moisture, like around the first of September, middle of September, you know, even on rangeland in 
you know, bone dry situations where there's no soil moisture for two or three feet down and there's been no rain. I see plants initiate new growth and you see brand new shoots coming off of plant crowns that are just as dry as they can be. So what's triggering that to happen? The, the, what the, the two triggers that we have is a shortening day length and the cooling temperatures hmm. in that fall period that's ending summer dormancy. That's what ends summer dormancy is when you start to see this uh, uh, shortening day length and cooling temperatures by the plants change into the semi-dormancy period number one, which precedes the uh, – the, um, period 2a and 2b where we have our rapid fall growth growth. Mm -hmm. yeah and so uh you're absolutely correct tip you don't need to have a drop of rain out there for that plant to create those new marrow stems and those new roots uh in that fall period and it seems crazy but if you have ever walked out there and observed uh your rangeland or your pasture land during that uh, August and early September period, and you know you've not gotten any rain, and we, maybe we don't get much showers at all in that fall period. If we think now, okay, in the spring, we're still going to get a whole crop of seed heads, aren't we? Well, all those seed heads that we see in that spring flush in the spring all came from these new marrow stems that were being created right here in in late August, September, and October. And and honestly, the earlier the seed head is created or the apical marrow stem is created in the in the fall, the earlier that seed head is actually going to be created in the spring, but it will also get longer. So our Timothy could give you a scenario, our Timothy folks like really long seed heads when they harvest first cutting. To create a long seed head in Timothy, we have to have that apical meristem created in early September versus late September. And that's the reason why second cutting Timothy heads are always short because they are uh, created after or before first cutting, but they'll have much shorter period of time in which to grow before they go into second or third cutting. So the time is of the essence here. And so um, during that fall period, that's the reason the calendar tip starts in September, because that is the absolute most critical month of the year for our uh, perennial cool season grasses. I just want to have you restate that 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 growth is initiated or or is... uh, riding on carbohydrates that are stored in the basal portion of the stem that's sitting there in August and September. So if we, if you graze that stem too close, it stunts the fall regrowth, which then stunts the next spring's growth. There's no question about it. That's a thousand percent correct, Tip. That's exactly what happens. And so that goes back to the underlying philosophy of our pasture calendar is to avoid uh, the overgrazing situation, overgrazing. And, and, and by understanding the growth pattern of the grasses in our pastures and our rangelands, it really helps us take a hold of 
now we can actually manage this in a way that we can avoid overgrazing, that we can produce the livestock products that we want. We can increase the soil organic matter like we want. We can prevent erosion like we want. And we can be economical like we want. It all fits together. In both rangelands and and pasture systems, we talk about protecting the productive potential of that ecosystem to produce forage, but there's some other, you know, ecological goods and services that are uh, that all kind of go together. And I think, from what you're saying, they're not antagonistic. For example, in other words, it's not you get one or the other. Uh, one of them is carbon storage. I've done some literature review on carbon storage in the last little while, and I, you know, it's known that grassland ecosystems have maybe 85% of the carbon storage below ground. And, and it's quite stable, which is why they're important. In forested ecosystems, a lot of that carbon is uh, above ground in the woody plant material. And as we've seen pretty dramatically this year, that's vulnerable to being uh, to being released through wildfire. And while we can have uh, severe wildfires on rangeland that's only removing 10 or 15 percent of the of the the carbon storage uh, but what i'm what i'm hearing also is that protecting uh, protecting those plants so that so that they are uh, always sitting ready for maximum growth uh, also protects some of these other ecosystem goods and services like carbon storage um which are maybe increasingly important to society. Absolutely true, Tip. And uh, this, as we talk about this in in respect to the growth patterns that we were just visiting about, you can see that we have root shedding occurring during the wintertime. We have root shedding occurring during the summertime, which means then that we have root regeneration in the fall and we have root regeneration in the spring. So twice a year we have roots shed and twice a year we have roots generate. Hmm. Now, that root shedding process is what is going to create that soil organic matter, that soil organic carbon that is so vital to holding nutrients tight so they don't leach out, to holding um, water in that in that uh, area, to holding oxygen in that soil. Those are key components to promote root growth, plant growth, and also soil microorganism uh, survival and growth, uh, which there's a whole new world out there that we have learned about. And so uh, it, it comes back to those plants and being able to generate those roots and those roots then creating this wonderful environment uh, for uh, many other organisms. And like you said, the goods and services that we, what we hope to, to gain from this. And that stubble, that three or four inches of stubble that's out there, and depending on the species, it may be down to two inches for some plants. Because there, there are differences, as you mentioned, about the sod formers versus the bunch grasses. That stubble for all of those plants 
does store a lot of sugar, most of the sugar. And in some of the sod former grasses, they will store sugar in those rhizomes or stolons that are underground stems or above ground stems. But the, the stubble for our bunch grasses is our key component of storing those sugars. And that sugar is the primer. That's going to prime the new growth. And if we don't have enough sugar, that new growth is delayed. And every time you have another day of a delayed growth, it just simply slows the entire growth pattern down. And, uh, and ultimately, uh, we don't be able to produce the kinds of forage dry matter, the forage quality that we are actually trying to achieve for our grazing animals, whether it be wildlife or domestic. It doesn't really matter. We're trying to create good, high-quality forage for those animals, and and they may not use it at that point in time. They may use it months later, but the quality is still going to be relatively good for those animals to to maintain themselves and to reproduce. Thanks, Steve. For those listeners who have hung on this long, uh, I asked you to do this interview because you've got a training coming up on this pasture calendar. Uh, can you describe that training and whether it's something that's open to anybody or is it directed toward uh, a specific invitation-only audience? Well, right now, we, we received a grant from uh, Western SARE um, and to do this inland pasture calendar. And so what we are going to do is a series of webinar trainings uh, in early November, uh, November 3rd, 4th, 5th, and 6th. And there will be each will be a half day session. And this is in lieu of what we really wanted to do and what we planned to do, which was face-to-face, all-day training programs um, in which people would be invited to come at no cost. Uh, They could come to this training, and it would be very intensive. We would introduce the calendar and all kinds of associated information that supports what's going on inside the calendar. The virus has changed our plans, uh, and so now we are into having to do this through the webinar series. And this is really is for extension faculty, NRCS field specialists, conservation district folks, um, crop and livestock producers, people from the State Department of Ag, FSA, those, those kind of ag professionals is our target audience. However, we are also interested in having some producers and landowners and livestock owners also participate in this. The beauty of what we're going to do is it's all going to be recorded. Uh, and this recording will be permanent, and people will then be able to have a copy of the calendar in front of them. They'll be able to look at the or listen to the recording uh, of these webinars, and they will then be able to utilize this calendar and the information within uh, for their own farming operation. And so uh, we, we think that this is going to be really a helpful way of uh, preserving what we did um, through these educational uh, webinar programs. So, so it works both ways, Tip. Um, 
we're going to have economics that's going to be part of this. The calendar, all these components that we've been talking about are all going to be part of this webinar series. Um, whether they see it live or they get to hear it after it's been recorded. Sure. Uh, we will put in the show notes for this episode a link to the registration page for that conference. And I assume that people would also be able to find information there about the recordings after the fact. Uh, if not, then we can, we'll update that link later. Yes. Anything else people should know about the pastoring calendar or the training? Well, I think the, the bottom line that we are really trying to achieve here is to prevent uh, overgrazing and knowing and understanding that this has been a process that uh, people who have raised livestock uh, have had to fight and um, and overcome major major difficulties. I want to give you a couple of really good examples. Um, back in eighteen. 77, excuse me, 1788, got him backwards, 1788, um, the Europeans, English, sent shiploads of inmates to Australia. And in that, uh, uh, what they called their first fleet, uh, they also, because these people are going to have to eat, uh, once they get there, they sent a, a bunch of rabbits and the rabbits were then designed and to be used for human food. And they were all caged. And, of course, as you know, things happen, and the rabbits got out. And everything was fine for a really long time. Um, and, and all of a sudden, uh, about a, a, a century later, uh, they passed a law that they could no longer kill the rabbits and eat them. And in one year, they went from everything was fine to completely exploding in rabbits. <laughs> and, of course, then uh, they had a tremendous amount of overgrazing from the rabbits. Uh, they had erosion from the rabbits. And um, when I was there, uh, I went to the International Grassland Congress 30 years ago, and they were still having issues with rabbits there. In the United States, we also have had uh, problems with rabbits, this time jackrabbits versus the European rabbits. We had jackrabbits, and during the 30s uh, in Kansas, they had what was called the jackrabbit drives. And um, my parents were old enough that they remember these jackrabbit drives, and they told us kids about these jackrabbit drives. And what they did is they had a, about um, 10,000 people would uh, form a, a, a two circles, if you will, around this area, uh, which was about eight square miles. Um, and, and so then they, they had these, these uh, people continue to bring, get closer and closer and closer. And the goal was to get uh, these rabbits into a 40-acre area. And, uh, and they did. And the net result of this was estimated about 35,000 rabbits. And um, so, so that was one way to control a grazer from overgrazing, this case, the jackrabbits. 
um, also in Kansas, and the, they call it the, the grasshopper plague of 1874. And uh, the sky turned uh, black, uh, was blocked out from these swarms of grasshoppers, and they ate, according to the records, they ate the wool off of the sheep, they ate the clothes off of the people, and then, of course, they ate all the crops. And the settlers uh, at that time essentially raked piles and piles of grasshoppers and burned them uh, to get rid of them. And uh, even today, Tip, we still have overgrazing in some of our federal lands, uh, BLM, with the wild uh, uh, horses and burrows uh, that are there. And so uh, our calendar is designed to help try to mitigate some of these overgrazing situations because at the end of the day, when you have overgrazing, not only the land resources are are injured and uh, we increase soil erosion and decrease soil organic matter and, and we have increased runoff uh, when we do get rain events to the other extreme where the animals no longer are productive, no longer gaining weight, but are losing weight. And you've seen those photos with the with the animal carcasses out there in the in the desert rangeland. And so um, we're trying to prevent both extremes because neither one of them is very healthy in our modern day society. So that's the whole idea behind the calendar and, uh, and why we are so fixated, I guess, on uh, overgrazing. Thanks, Steve. I'm looking forward to that, and I expect that this will be useful uh, beyond the Pacific Northwest as well. Thank you very much, Chip. We're hoping that, uh, uh, and we've been told from our West Side Pasture calendar that this will become the new standard uh, throughout the United States. And one friend of mine uh, said that this will become a new standard in the world of pasture management um, down the road. So time will tell if that's true or not. We'll wait and see. But that's the idea is to try to prevent healthy pastures, which will prevent, provide healthy uh, uh, animals. And then we're going to benefit as humans from all the animal products that are produced from this land. Very good. Steve, thanks for joining me. Thank you, Tip. Thank you for listening to the Art of Range podcast. You can subscribe to and review the show through iTunes or your favorite podcasting app so you never miss an episode just search for Art of Range. If you have questions or comments for us to address in a future episode, send an email to show at artofrange.com. For articles and links to resources mentioned in the podcast, please see the show notes at artofrange.com. Listener feedback is important to the success of our mission, empowering rangeland managers. Please take a moment to fill out a brief survey at artofrange.com. This podcast is produced by Connors Communications in the College of Agricultural, Human, and Natural Resource Sciences at Washington State University. The project is supported by the University of Arizona and funded by the Western Center for Risk Management Education through the USDA National Institute of Food and Agriculture.